ask that you remain standing and take up your copy of God's Holy Word that you have there with you and turn with me to this epistle to 1 Peter, there toward the back of your Bible, and let's read together verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that Not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gracious and most glorious Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, As we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we need your help. We acknowledge that as recipients of the grace of our Lord and having been entrusted with the precious and priceless truth of the gospel, we find ourselves living in an age of great wealth and ease and comfort and liberty to practice the faith once delivered. And we also acknowledge that it is at times like this that your people are most given to becoming weak, easily corrupted by worldly temptations, and prone to wandering from what you have revealed to us as the things which are of ultimate importance. Primary things far too easily become secondary, and secondary things begin to take preeminence in our lives, O Lord. And as we now turn to your word, help us. Help us to see anew who we are and to whom we belong. Bring correction, bring confidence, bring conviction, and sanctify us. 
Give us a greater desire to live holy lives before our God and before a watching world and in our homes. Equip and prepare us for every trial and shepherd us as we look to this letter from the Apostle Peter. Make your word as fresh to us this day as it was to your people who first received it nearly 2,000 years ago. And this we ask in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As we gather here this morning, I suspect that there are several children who are presently working on their catechisms, and I know this is true, but I would like to see a hand, a show of hands. Kids, raise your hands high if you're working on the catechism with your parents at home. Come on, raise those hands up high, or if you have recently completed the catechism. Come on, Asher, let's see that hand go way on up there. Um, So let me ask those of you, you don't have to answer, but you can put your hands down now. If you know the answer to this question, I would like for you to raise your hand. And this includes young adults who have been through the catechism and parents who are presently leading their children in the catechism. What, question seven, what does the Bible teach us? You know the answer? Do you know the answer? Come on, I know more, more hands than that. Good. Way, way to put your hand up there. Way high, Ryan. The Bible, the answer is the Bible teaches us who God is and what he requires of us. Now, the harder question is, do you remember the prove it that goes along with this catechism question? If you know it, what's the text? What's the prove it? Raise your hand. Is there a hand out there? I know. Oh, I see one. I see one. Okay, we're good. Good. The prove it for this question, what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us who God is and what he requires of us. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Verses very familiar with the entire church, I, I honestly believe. And we read that it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In his letter to the Colossian church, Paul provides in summary form his mission statement regarding Christ. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And while Scripture is filled with information, with instruction, and historical facts, in the words of Dwight L. Moody, the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. I thought that was a most appropriate quote as I was thinking about the message today. So why do I even bring it up? Well, there are at least two reasons. The first reason is that some of us here this morning love to be taught. We love to hear teaching of all sorts, and particularly biblical teaching. And if this is you, then you may find yourself often attracted to teaching conferences and preaching conferences. You love to gather and understand the facts, as it were. And perhaps it is because you have a desire to take those facts and 
and a symbol, a framework, a logical framework of understanding. If you're in this group, you're very likely most delighted, the most delighted, when you hear something expounded from Scripture that you have never, ever before heard and considered. And it is even particularly satisfying if that bit of information is like the missing puzzle piece that has fallen on a floor. Do you know what I mean? I think most of us here have been there. You're working on a puzzle, a big puzzle perhaps, and, and you spend a long time, hours and hours, waiting, working on this puzzle and waiting through this pile of pieces. And right over here is the piece that you're looking for because you know if you see that, you're going to know exactly where to put it. And then after spending hours, you glance down at the floor, and there it is, that piece, missing piece of the puzzle, and it goes right there. And that's a great delight to you. It's satisfying. But the second reason I mention this is that while knowledge and information and facts, those missing pieces of the puzzle are good and necessary, that is not all there is, and we can't stop there. The teaching from Scripture is given to enter our minds and then, and then to do something. You don't just keep it stored in your head. It is intended to work its way from your mind down into your heart, transforming and informing your motivations and directing your actions. And this means when you sit under the preaching of the Word or when you read the Scriptures in your devotions... The end goal is not simply information gathering. It is a life. It is a life that is more and more transformed into the image of Christ that you are seeking through the Word. Information is important, but right information and right teaching leads to, leads to right thinking and right practices. If you only have one, you don't have the entire puzzle before you. But right practice is only possible when it flows from a heart. Now hear this. It only, it's only possible to have right practice when it flows from a heart that has been both informed and transformed by God's holy word. And as we begin a new series of messages from First Peter, I believe we will understand and profit more from what Peter writes if we have some grasp of the context in which the letter is written. And that is the goal and objective of this message. I can't go into extensive depth here, and that is really not my desire. But I would hate for us to go into this word cold and not understanding some of the context in which Peter writes. Yes, in attempting to understand a context a bit better. Information is needed, but it is information that has an objective. It's going somewhere. And it's good to know that it's helpful to read the letters in Scripture in their entirety. Do you do that very often? Do you sit down and pick an epistle? Do you pick a, a book of the Bible? Set aside some time and carefully read through it from cover, from front to back, beginning to end. This is a good thing to do, and I certainly encourage you to do that with First Peter in the coming weeks and months. And as you do so, it's not uncommon for you to find a sentence or a paragraph that summarizes the author's intent in that particular book. 
or maybe several. One such summary is what we find near the end of this letter where Peter writes these words, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here we see one possible summary of Peter's goal, and that is to encourage and shore up his readers in the faith, readers who are undergoing various trials and suffering, and to let them know that there is a point to their suffering and that the grace of God is sufficient to see them through their suffering. As we read a moment ago in the first verse of this letter, Peter is writing to a particular people. Those who are pilgrims, sojourners in the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is an area that covers much of modern-day Turkey. Peter, while Peter writes to a particular people at a particular place in a particular time, facing particular trials, God has inspired and preserved this word, His word, for all peoples at all times throughout all of history. Peter wrote this epistle somewhere around A.D. 65. And by this time, the spread of the gospel had reached even to the more remote areas along the Black Sea coast. By the start of the second century, even the smaller villages knew of the Christian faith, and the commerce of the idol temples had largely come to a halt. People from all classes in society had been reached with the gospel. And isn't that a wonderful picture to consider, especially in that time and place and area? During this time of rapid spread of the faith, persecution broke out and became more and more intense. And sadly, sadly, many Christians facing persecution ended up, as they faced that persecution, recanting and denying the faith. But even so, the number of Christians was so great as to cause a serious concern to Roman authorities. Less than 50 years after Peter wrote this letter, Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of Pontus and Bithynia, up there along the Black Sea coast, wrote to the emperor Trajan asking how best to handle these Christians. He wrote saying, I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. In his letter, the intensity of the persecution is revealed as Pliny writes of those who recanted. But the letter also indicates how the early Christians, though prepared to die for their faith, were not insurrectionists or terrorists. Their Lord's Day worship practices were also revealed in part. We get a little glimpse into that, along with some of the details of their Christian approach to life. Pliny continues his letter with words that both reveal the extraordinary depth of faith among many and the horrors of the persecutions. So bear with me, if you will, as I read a larger portion of this letter, as it helps us to set the context and 
which preceded, just preceded the people that, the time and the people that Peter was writing to. And here is that larger portion from Pliny's letter to the Emperor Trajan. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, writing to Trajan, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods, and moreover, cursed Christ, none of which, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. So what is he saying? If they were faced to deny Christ and they worshiped the, an image of the emperor Trajan and cursed Christ, he said they could be discharged. But he's, check, he's seeking counsel here. Others named by the informer declared that they were Christians but then denied it, asserting that they had been, had been but had ceased to be some three years before, others as many Others, many years, some as much as 25 years. They all worshipped your images and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly, responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, or not to falsify their trust nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. But ordinary and innocent food, even this they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations." Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find, that, find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses, but I discovered not, nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes, are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It's certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun, begun to be frequented. And that's all of the letter that I'm, I'm going to read here. But this letter reveals for us a sad glimpse into the lives of oppressed Christians, many of whom denied the faith when faced with persecution. And yet there were numbers and numbers and numbers of them, and the church was continuing to grow. But I believe it does beg the question that is appropriate for all of us to ask here this morning and in the days to come, how will I respond in the face of certain torture and death? If you're ever forced to face that situation... Have you thought through how you would respond? I think it's one of those very difficult things to think clearly about, and yet I think we have a duty to do so, and it would do us well to steady ourselves in the conviction that we would not deny the faith. In Peter's day, persecution and suffering for the gospel was well known. 
But a generation or two later, when we read this letter, it was even worse and continuing to intensify. In the Lord's providence, Peter's letter served to prepare not just his own generation for handling suffering, but also this second generation who suffered even more. And also in the Lord's providence, we can now turn to this letter like so many have done in the intervening generations and receive wisdom, encouragement, and instruction on how to respond to genuine oppression and persecution and suffering that may someday come our way or come the way of our children or grandchildren. For the purpose of this message, we will only consider Peter's opening greeting. And from this greeting, I would like to draw our attention to four, four, make four observations. So let me read verses 1 and 2 once again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. The first thing we see in this greeting is that Peter identifies himself as the author and he includes his calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Since Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, we are invited to read his letter through the lens of his experience as a disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ. The Gospels name Peter as one of the twelve and as a member of the inner circle of three of Peter, James, and John. And as you read the Gospels, you get a clear sense that he was perhaps the most outspoken among the twelve disciples. He was the spokesman, in some sense, their leader. He articulated some of the most profound thoughts given by God Himself. He confessed to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter also embodied some of the disciples' worst errors. He even dared to rebuke Jesus on the very day that he confessed Jesus' deity. He asked pointed questions and made a rash vow telling Jesus, even if I die with you, I will not deny you. And not long after, he denied Jesus three times. After the resurrection, Jesus commissioned the apostles to make disciples of the nations. Despite Peter's failures, Jesus restored him and commanded Peter to feed his sheep. At Pentecost, Peter proclaimed Jesus' resurrection, and 3,000 repented, believed, and were baptized. And that marked the birth of the church as we know it. When Peter preached again, the church exploded and additional disciples were added. Peter performed signs, testified to Christ, solved problems, rebuked sin within the infant Jerusalem church, and ultimately died a martyr's death. Peter did betray Jesus, but even his failures draw us to them, don't they? And they illumine both the man and the message. His humanity is on display in the pages of Scripture for all to see. You may have even thought that of all the apostles, it is Peter with whom you can most readily identify. Oh, I wish that I could identify in the way that Peter did. Even when faced with the glory and power of God and Jesus there in the, in the boat, 
to know immediately his sinfulness. It is fitting then that Peter, who betrayed the Lord but also received the grace of forgiveness, opens his epistle by extending to the church the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing Peter's history, we understand that his mention of grace is no mere courtesy, no mere formality. Peter denied Jesus three times, insisting with oaths that he did not even know Jesus. And he did this despite warnings, despite vows to the contrary, and at the hour of Jesus' greatest need. Yet Peter repented. He repented genuinely, in tears, and received forgiveness and restoration from the Lord because he knew the depth of his need and because he understands understood the perfection of Jesus' offer. Yes, Peter loved the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we see here in Peter's greeting is the audience to whom he is writing. He is writing to those that he refers to as, dare I try the Greek word, peripitamos, peripitamos, which is variously translated pilgrims, Sojourners, strangers, aliens, resident foreigners, and exiles. These are people who came from a foreign country into a city or land to reside side by side with the native people there. They are strangers in a strange place. But who are these pilgrims? Who are these exiles? In Galatians 2, 2, Paul makes it clear that Peter, in particular, along with James and John, had an apostolic calling to the circumcised, that is, the Jews, while Paul's calling was to the Gentiles. When we consider this fact, along with what we read in chapter 2, verse 12 of this epistle, where Peter urges his readers to have their conduct honorable among the Gentiles, we may fairly conclude that Paul is writing to Jewish believers who were exiles from their native home. As I have already mentioned, 1 Peter was written around A.D. 65, and 2 Peter was written shortly thereafter, just before the book of Revelation was written. At this time, Rome had authorized Jews to hunt down Christians and to destroy the church. Nothing but a remnant was left, and the bulk of the church in Israel had been scattered in various directions. And even then... They faced enormous persecution from both Jews and Romans. Peter writes to help these Christians, who were primarily Jewish converts, learn how to face persecution as Christ called them to. Like their father Abraham, they were pilgrims who didn't really belong anywhere. They were forced out of Israel, but they weren't accepted in these regions of what is now modern-day Turkey. One glad day, the church will indeed possess the whole earth and the land will be ours. We will no longer be exiles or pilgrims because Christians will inherit the earth. But until that time, we are all, in a sense, pilgrims. So in that sense, we stand in good company with the fathers of Israel, none of whom had yet inherited the land that had been promised to them. But third, we see here that Peter refers to these pilgrims and exiles as the dispersion or the scattered ones. 
These Christians had left all that they knew and in leaving had been dispersed to the regions of Turkey, which was a large area, far from home, and absent the cultural connections that bind a people together. So it was no doubt important and encouraging for them to get this letter from Peter back in Jerusalem, to have a connection back to their homeland and their home people. They were trying to live life create a new home while simultaneously continuing to encounter persecution. Though scattered, they are unified in the faith, and it would have been a great comfort knowing that there are other brothers and sisters in this region as well who are also on the same pilgrim journey that they were. Peter wants all believers to realize that they and that we, by extension, can never fully belong to this world. Aliens have no permanent residence. Aliens can't hold positions of power and rarely enjoy full privileges. And in some sense, this is essential to a Christian's identity. God's people in biblical churches have almost always committed to engage the culture rather than fleeing from it. Don't hear me wrong, and rightly so. Yet we must remember that we are exiles and therefore will never be completely at home in this world. While the anonymous author of the old hymn has his focus on a purely spiritual understanding, I believe, we can easily understand why this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, has enjoyed such popularity in the church. And as we witness the unraveling of a society with political and cultural leaders denying even the most obvious elements of general revelation, it is perhaps a bit easier for our generation to see than it was for our parents and grandparents. In this country, we may not be exiles, but the truths that Peter will later reveal in this letter will nonetheless be applicable to us and to future generations. And the fourth observation is that Peter identifies the dispersed pilgrims as elect, elect, They are, so to speak, the elect dispersed pilgrims, chosen by God to be His people and also to endure persecution as exiles scattered abroad living among a pagan people. There is great comfort in this word, elect. These people lived in difficult situations as strangers in the places where they were serving God, but they are God's chosen people, like the Israelites before them, called by God to be a people who would serve Him. So Peter's readers are reminded that God has always intended that they should be His people and should serve Him where He has placed them, even in these remote Roman provinces. Their election by God reminds them that they are Christians simply by God's grace, His undeserved mercy and love. Being elect also reminds them that they are chosen for a purpose and that God will keep them and protect them as they fulfill His will for them. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 8, we read, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you 
And because he would keep an oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Peter, no doubt, had these and many other verses from Scripture in mind, along with the promises they, they bore as he wrote to the dispersed church, promises that were attached to God's sovereign election. Surely such promises were a comfort to them, even as they are to us this day. Knowing who you are and to whom you belong is essential knowledge for every Christian to firmly embrace. The world may reject you, but what really matters is that God has chosen you and thus you do belong wherever and whenever you are. You belong to God. We belong to God. But did you also notice the wonderful Trinitarian description that Peter provides about your election? Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all participate. As Peter writes, the world hates these exiles, but they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And foreknowledge is not simply God having a plan, though He does have a plan for each of us. It is sometimes translated as foreloved. It is an intimate knowledge connected to the eternal counsel of God's will. As exiles in a foreign land, they may feel like orphans, but they are fundamentally loved with an eternal love by their true Father. And as such, they are never actually orphans. And though the world rejects them, the Holy Spirit sets them apart, sanctifies them to Himself. And sanctification is, is a sort of opposite of rejection. It is, it is a great word for each of us to consider when you feel lonely and when you feel rejected. God has sanctified you. The Holy Spirit has sanctified you unto the Lord and drawn you into Himself and set you apart. You are His special treasure. And as exiles, they may be treated like the lowest of the low, like dirt, you might say, but Christ has cleansed them with His precious blood. As Christ looks upon His people, He sees them clean. And so they are truly clean, attractive, and altogether lovely. The people of God are chosen by the electing grace and foreknowledge of the Father and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit unto obedience to Jesus Christ. As Christians chosen by God, united to Him and being made His people, it came with a cost. It required the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. They had been, as it were, sprinkled with His blood they had also been brought into the new covenant, established not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus. Few teachings in Scripture can be more encouraging than the knowledge that God has chosen His people, has chosen us by His grace. Which brings us to the last, at last, to Peter's formal greeting, grace to you and peace be multiplied. The greeting is simultaneously brief and yet profound. Another translation reads, May grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Grace is the undeserved covenant love of the Lord so often experienced by the people of Israel. The Hebrew word hesed especially highlights this faithful covenant love of God for His people. It is often translated unfailing love or steadfast love. God's people have always known that they not only enter the covenant relationship with God by grace, but they also remain in that relationship with Him by grace. In prayer form then, Peter, Peter's greeting touches on their greatest need. They need God's continuing grace to fulfill the purpose for which they were chosen. And peace is another covenant concept that reflects the Hebrew idea of shalom. The peace is experience, which is experienced by those who are God's people, who have been forgiven and who inherit His blessings. In greeting them, Peter prays that these dispersed strangers in the world will know the peace of an established relationship with God and the peace of living in the shadow of the one who alone can fully and unfailingly deliver resurrection hope and their eternal inheritance. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10 brings these two concepts of grace and peace together in the Lord's covenant dealings with His people. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, he writes, God speaking, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Grace and peace are both needed by God's people in His church. They were needed by the dispersed elect pilgrims 2,000 years ago, and they are very much needed today. While living in a world hostile to us because of our Christian faith, in a world where things are always uncertain and where to live by faith is increasingly risky, we need to remember our secure standing before God. Regardless of our circumstances, we can stand firm in the grace of God who chose us before the foundation of the world and brought us to Himself through the setting apart of the Spirit in conversion. Have you turned away from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Is this something you would profess to someone who is ready to take your life and to torture you? to try to get you to change your mind, to recant and deny the gospel? If so, then you have nothing to fear, for the very fact that you have believed the gospel is evidence of your election. And not only this, but you will enjoy peace as you endure that suffering, if there is suffering to be had. This is the grace and peace that Peter prayed would be multiplied in abundance to the suffering Christians And that I pray will be multiplied to us as we travel through the world as elect exiles. So here in 1 Peter verses 1 and 2, Peter is encouraging the elect dispersed pilgrim Christians by reminding them that they are indeed the covenant people of God. In election, the Father set His covenant love on us before the foundation of the world. By His sacrificial death, the Son fulfilled the requirements of the covenant. And this covenant was effectually and perfectly established in an intimate relationship between God and His people 
who are not only forgiven and cleansed from sin, they are also empowered to obey God, to walk in holiness, because they possess new hearts and God's indwelling spirit. People of heritage, know that as God's chosen people, you enter this covenant and stay in this covenant by His grace. It is all of grace. As the gospel is preached and embraced, the Holy Spirit sets you apart to obey the command of the gospel to repent and believe. This is the solution for your sin. This is the equipping of God for every trial, every suffering, and every persecution that you may face. This is the great redemption accomplished and applied by the triune God. It has been given to you by the one who made you. Every person of the Trinity was involved in saving you. The Father elects you for salvation. The Son accomplishes your salvation and the Spirit applies salvation. And this is the promise and this is the comfort and this is the assurance and the hope to all who believe the gospel. So all praise and thanks be to our glorious God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, with with thankful hearts, we ask that you abundantly multiply your grace and perfect peace, those things which are so needed by your people. You are great beyond our understanding and greatly to be praised. The more we know that we belong to you, the more we know that you have chosen us and set us apart unto yourself, the greater comfort and peace we experience and the more we see that we are recipients of your amazing grace. We humbly ask that you, by the effectual working of your Holy Spirit, would equip us for whatever trial or persecution we may face, that we may never deny the faith nor compromise our testimony to the truth of the gospel, that you would also go before us and defeat our and your enemies and find us in faithful obedience to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, be our help. Be our rock. Be our sure foundation in this life. Do a great work in and among your people here. Gather here this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Make us to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that it is undeniable. Cleanse us from our sins. Show us our sins that we might confess them and repent them and turn away from them as we call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in His cleansing blood. O Lord, work in Your people. Fill us with Your joy. In all these things we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of Your holy kingdom here on earth. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.